Do you own firearms? Did you know there's an easy way for you to let everyone around you quickly see whether your firearm is loaded or unloaded? Well, meet muzzlestick, barrel, and chamber flags. Muzzlestick, chamber, and barrel flags offer a quick way for anyone, whether they handle firearms or not, to quickly see the loaded or unloaded status of a firearm. And that could save lives. Are you one of the nearly 80% of firearms owners that keep a loaded gun out of the safe for personal protection, taking an extra safety precaution by using muzzle sticks, big, bright barrel and chamber flags will let everyone around your firearm know if it is loaded or unloaded. Muzzle stick does not recommend keeping a loaded firearm outside of a gun safe, but the reality is that some firearm owners do. Clearly marking a gun status communicates to others around that may or may not have firearm handling experience that it is something that they would not want to handle. Muzzle stick is not intended to replace the rules of firearm safety. However, their chamber and barrel flags give firearms rapid and clear identification, which could result in saved lives. It's time for you to do everything you can to be a safe and responsible firearms owners. Head over to muzzlestick.com. That's M-U-Z-L-S-T-I-K.com today to place your order. After all, we all only have but one life. Ladies, hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm a lucky man, Jack Fowler. I get to be the host, but the star and the namesake, that is Victor Davis Hanson. He is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. We are recording on Veterans Day, November 11th, and we're going to get some uh, thoughts from Victor on Veterans Day and a Veterans Day movie. But we're going to start off with Victor's thoughts about Barack Obama and some viral, gone viral comments he's made about Hamas and Israel. And uh, by the time this podcast is uh, up on the World Wide Web, Victor uh, will be a day before Joe Biden is to meet in San Francisco with uh, Communist China Premier Xi. And we'll get Victor's thoughts on what might or might not happen there, plus another topic or two, and we'll we'll begin um, all of this right after these important messages. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. Victor, your favorite ex-president, mine, <laughs> Barack Hussein Obama, had this to say the other day. Quote, what Hamas did was horrific and there is no justification for it. And what is also true is that the occupation, that's his word, and what's happening to the to Palestinians is unbearable. If you want to solve the problem, then you have to take in the whole truth. And then you have to admit nobody's hands are clean and that all of us are complicit to some degree. End quote. Victor, another another incident of Barack Obama's longstanding love affair with Israel. Your thoughts? Yes, um, we are. I'm broadcasting on my end uh, in Los Angeles, so I'm in a hotel room. So I hope our acoustics are good, Jack. Uh, I'm at the Prager University annual dinner, and I'm going to speak in a little bit. But um, so I'm in a hotel room, so I hope everybody can hear fine. But, you know, Obama sounds good, Victor. Um, oh, good. Well, I mentioned, you know, he had a democracy forum and it was going to be It was going to include more inclusive capitalism, he said. And it was going to be warnings about material consumption. I think Sammy and I talked and I asked the rhetorical question, was he going to give that lecture from the Martha Vineyards mansion, the Calorama mansion in Washington, the new beach house in hawaii i think it's with the land and the construction it's over 20 million or it's going to be the original chicago mansion in other words he seems to be very exclusive as far as the amount of money he has it's surely not spreading the wealth he's in the upper 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 one one point zero 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 one percent and of course he seems to be addicted to material consumption but that's his trademark that's his uh, signature to lecture people not to do what he does and to project onto others what he is insecure about himself. And so he, you know, he wants to weigh in and say that um, Israel, he says the word occupation, and I'm wondering what that means. Since Gaza was all uh, Jews and Israelis were evacuated by Sharon, remember, in 2005 and by 2006, the Bush administration had pressured Israel into allowing an election. And they did it. And like all Mideast elections, you have one election, one time, once forever and never again. And Hamas was elected and the rest is history. They have got a cumulative probably of somewhere, Jack, probably a trillion dollars from the Gulf uh, monarchies, the EU, the United States, channeled through the UN, and they built a multi-billion dollar labyrinth city and a huge rocket force. And then we learned that the top three Hamas leaders are billionaires living in Gadar and luxury digs. So Obama believes it's occupied, but he never tells us who's occupying it because what, who does he mean? I mean, it's been occupied. The only people who have been occupying, Hamas has occupied Gaza since they hijacked it in 2006. And he says, you know, you, you quoted that. If you wanted to solve the problem, you have to take in the whole truth. Okay. And you have to admit that nobody's hands are clean. Our listeners' hands are clean, Jack. Those of us are all complicit to some degree. No, you are, Barack. You did it. You were the one 
that uh, let's go through your litany. Remember the Shia crescent I keep hammering? That Tehran, Damascus, and Beirut, and Gaza City, and Jericho is going to make a Shia crescent maybe, balance off those horrible moderate Egyptians and Jordanians and Gulf monarchies and the Israelis, and then you were going to sit there as a puppeteer of rock, play one side off against each other. How'd that work out? And then he was the one, remember he got in, Jack, it was, what, day 10 or something of his administration? I may be exaggerating. Very early, there was that green movement in Iran. Right. A million people hit the streets, and Barack Obama was just silent like a sphinx, like, wow. These people Up in his residence smoking cigarettes. He was. Yes, uh, he was. He was. Uh, these people have screwed up my plans to support the theocracy. What are they, neoconservatives or something? I don't want to support these guys. And then we had uh, John Kerry, remember, that they, you know, uh, if, they, uh, if they move around uh, WMD, you know, in Syria, then that's a red line for me. And then John Kerry called in the Russians after 40 years and invited them into syria they're still there by the way then we had robert malley he brought out of retirement to be our hamas point man and our isis point man we know what happened when he skedaddled from iraq and created the isis caliphate then he lifted the sanctions we got 50 billion dollar in war chest money given to the iranians the first time then of course trump stopped it then biden oh biden brought it back uh you and I talked earlier about the news reports that money that Obama had given, which continues under Biden, to the Beirut government in Lebanon seeps into the coffers of Hezbollah. Then we have the Iran deal. I remember the echo chamber that Ben Rhodes talked about, that the reporters who knew nothing. And then we had the wishy-washy rhino Republicans that went along with it and allowed him to circumvent the two-thirds necessary to approve a treaty. So I could go on, but you get the impression that he created this mess. So then when he says his hands are not, none of our hands are, free, yes, everybody listen to this, hands are clean, not yours. You caused this problem. You empowered Iran, who empowered Hezbollah, who empowered Hamas, and that wasn't enough for you directly empowered Hezbollah and Hamas. You gave Hamas money. You knew that money that you gave to the Lebanese government was going to Hezbollah. So, and then you went, you wage war in the Netanyahu Israeli government. Pathetic. Pathetic. There's, there's a, um, Victor, an interesting piece today, just, you may not have seen it, but I'm just recommending to our listeners up on Powerline, actually was posted uh, yesterday by Lloyd Billingsley, and it's titled Obama and Farrakhan. And it's a great um, little history of uh, their relationship. The missing picture. You know who else? I'm not fair, Jack, when I said, when he said everybody's hands are not clean, the media's hands are not clean because they gave us Barack Obama. When he was running... It was known. Remember, he had posed very early with Farrakhan and they suppressed it. And we didn't find that out that he was smiling, you know, with chumming it up with Farrakhan, the anti-Semite, till he was out of office. Just like Rashid Khalidi uh, on a banquet in his honor that Obama said some things that were very pro-radical Palestinian. The L.A. Times suppressed that that transcript and video and audio because they, they understood the media that he had 
he had vulnerabilities as an appeaser of radical Islam, and that's charitable. Remember <laughs> Hillary Clinton finally, you know, stumbled upon that. So she, in her crude way, she said something like, well, I think he's Christian. I, I don't think he's a Muslim, is he? <laughs> yeah. Well, his church gave Farrakhan an award, uh, Reverend Wright. But anyway, yeah, it's, it's personal pastor. His personal pastor said that the Jews had made uh, had made armaments that could sniff out Arabs. And then, he, you know, like an AI or something. And then he also said he wanted to talk to Barack, but D-E-M, dim Jews won't let him. So he's got a long history of despising Israel and despising Jews. And by the way, Jack, you know, this what's appeared now from all of these anti-Israelites is that, well, we, this old canard, we hate Israel because it's a neo-colonialist interlope. But we don't hate Jews. I have a question for them who say that. So 21% of the population is Arab. So when they say from the river to the sea, they say they just want to destroy Israel, right? And get rid of, I guess, whom? The Jews? But would they say that they want to get rid of the 21% of the Israeli population that's Arab? No. When they say that, they were saying, we want to get rid of Israel and the Jews, but any Arabs that happen to be living there, like one-fifth of the country, would be would stay, and they would be incorporated into greater Palestine, which would be the West Bank, Gaza, which would be fought over by Hamas and Abbas and end up in Hamas's hands. And then if there was any Jewish person naive enough to stay there who hadn't been killed or exiled, then they would be given, accorded the same treatment as the 900,000 Jews that were ethnically cleansed from Damascus and Beirut and Cairo and Amman and Damascus after the series of wars of the last 70 years. Victor, we're going to stay uh, uh, on the um, on Hamas and the Biden administration's utterances about it. But before we do, I, I just want to take a minute to welcome back our sponsor, Cardi and Company. Cardi & Company is a family-operated and nationally recognized fixed-income investment firm with more than 50 years of experience. If you want control of your financial destination and decisions, but also want an experienced and knowledgeable person's guidance based on your risk tolerance and, and financial objectives, well, then visit CardiCo.com. Generally, for investments of $5,000 and up, find the investment that's right for you by visiting Cartico.com. That's C-A-R-T-Y-C-O.com. And we thank Carti and Company for sponsoring the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, Victor, I have a headline here from the Daily Mail. Senator, excuse me, Senator, Secretary Blinken says, quote, far too many, end quote, Palestinians has have died as Hamas-run Gaza Ministry of Health puts death toll at 11,000. And the sub the sub uh, heads here uh, is uh, that uh, Blinken said this during a state uh, visit to India. Uh, he commended Israel for agreeing to daily pauses in battle to allow for humanitarian aid and evacuations. But far too many with friends like that, Victor, who needs enemies? And it r remind we talked a little before the beginning of the show 
uh, how many civilian deaths there were in Iraq and, and before, you know, from 2003 till about two, two or three years ago. Uh, I didn't even look up how many that there were in Afghanistan, but it's kind of a little bit galling for the uh, Secretary of State to be saying that, in my opinion. What's your opinion, Victor? Well, uh, Macron is, you know, and as Dan said, has, has said the same thing. Too many people have died, and it's disproportionate. So it brings up, Sammy and I talked a little bit about proportionality. I guess that's what Blinken means, that not enough Jews have died and too many Palestinians. And I didn't, uh, you know, on October 7th, there were probably 1,100 uh, civilians, maybe two to 300 IDF, so there were 14. I didn't hear him go all over the Middle East and say it's disproportionate too many Jews have died. But the point I'm making, Jack, is that proportionality leads to Stalingrad, where for five months, the Russians and the Germans could not find an edge over one or the other, and a million people were killed and two million were casualties. Proportionality leads to the trenches of World War One, where the Central Powers and the Allies had the same tactics, same manpower, same strategy, same equipment, and they killed 12 million people. Disproportionality is what we did in World War II and World War One. We saved Korea, and it wins war. So every war is a contest between one side and the other to achieve disproportional superiority, and that wins a war. If you don't do it, you lose a war, or if you do it just enough to match the enemy, then you have something, as I said, like Stalingrad or Verdun or the Somme. It's an endless calcified, ossified killing ground. So here we have Gaza. And what is the Gazan strategy, Jack? Think about it. Gaza's strategy was, I think, seven or eight parts to it, it seems to me. They went in at a time of peace, early in the morning when people were asleep, during a holiday, many festivities going on, and they were designed to kill elderly women, babies, young people, and incidentally, any men that they happen to be there. And they planned that for a year. And their so-called guest workers, we just want to work in Israel, were actually agents of that attack. They came back with detailed maps of the kibbutzes. They knew exactly who was living there, where the IDF people, etc. And they got there and they started killing. And so, yeah, the second part of the strategy was to mutilate, kill, behead, burn, to do things so shocking, included things like dismemberment, necrophilia, putting a baby in an oven, to do some things so shocking that it would either, what, paralyze the collective Israeli mentality, it would make Israelis want to get in a fetal position, please give up, we give up. Or they thought that it would be so horrendous that people would say, we haven't seen anything like this. This is pre-civilizational. The Israelis must be very bad to force people to act like animals. Then there was part three of their disproportionate strategy that they didn't think the Israelis would do. But we're going to do it. We're going to take 242 hostages back 
And you know what? All you civilians that are innocent, you can go through the hole in the wall and there's a big bounty. You get an apartment or 10 grand. All you got to do is capture an Israeli, get an older person, a young little toddler, a woman. You can rape her, whatever. Take them back in. And then we're going to uh, use them for what, Jack? We're going to meter them out, as we're seeing now. Once the Israelis get angry, if they don't go into a fetal position and they say, we're going to retaliate, we say, well, wait a minute. We're going to meter them out, maybe two hostages for two hours, 10 hours. We'll just uh, give you a hostage for every ceasefire and pause so that we can rearm and re-equip. Or we'll do what ISIS did, our brethren. We'll line them up and video them and behead them unless you stop. Then we had the fourth element, and that is they built 300 miles of tunnels, probably a multi, multi-billion dollar project. And then when you add the rockets and everything in, it was a whole underground subterranean labyrinth. And the idea of that was that we we're going to pop up out of these tunnels, kill some Jews, send some rockets, and then we're going to go back into our gopher holes and you can't hit us. And we're going to abscond with all the money that you stupid people in the West sent us to build Singapore, which we never were going to do. And we had a fifth idea, and that was we're going to put our entrances into our tunnels and our headquarters under mosque, schools, and hospitals. Because disproportionately, we think that you would never do that. And if you did do it, you stupid idiots would know that that would attract our missiles, not shield them. But in our case, we know that you don't do what we do. So we're going to use shields. And if anybody does not want to be a shield, we'll shoot them. And if they want to get out of Gaza City and flee into Egypt or something, we're going to shoot them. Because we need cannon fodder for all the stupid, useful idiots in the West. So we can hold up babies on screen and say, see what happened when they deliberately killed them. Of course, we go into tactic number six. While this is going on, Jack, we're going to send 7,000 rockets into uh, Israel. You know, when the, the, the Nazis did their V1, which was not a rocket, it was kind of a primitive uh, pulse engine jet uh, sort of like a cruise missile, but they did build a true intercontinental, I guess you could call it, long-range missile, 200 miles, 150 miles, uh, the V-2. Of all the V-2s they sent, all of them in World War II was about 3,000. They have already sent into Israel more than twice the number of V-2s that the Nazis launched over a year, from 44 to 45. Did they drop leaflets? No. Did they text apartment building? Hey, all you Israelis, we want you to get out of that building in the next two minutes because we have targeted it with a rocket. No. And that was disproportional because they said to themselves, this is what the Israelis do. They would never do what we're doing, but we're going to do something so disproportionate, we're going to get an edge. And so they did that. And when we total up all of these elements of their disproportionate strategy, they thought it was going to work. And then they said to the Israelis, uh, you're not going to be doing anything to us because we have strategies and rockets and stuff that gives us an advantage. And then the Israelis said, as their combatant, which happens in every war, oh, yeah, well, we're, we didn't go into a fetal position. And we're going to make sure that your Hamas leaders promises that you're going to do this once, twice, 100, 
a million times again and again forever is not going to happen. So we're going to go blast out Hamas. We're going to drop leaflets. We're going to warn people to get out, but we're going to attack them. If there is rubble, like Beirut in 2006, then it's your problem because you deliberately use shields and civilians and you shoot them. And we are nicer to your civilians in warning them about the carnage of war than you are. And that was the Israeli strategy. So they were both disproportionate. The problem was, Jack, when you compare them to each other, the Israelis were more disproportionate. I guess they were more competent in fulfilling their strategic objectives than was Hamas. In other words, when they bombed, they blew up something of strategic value. And when Hamas sent one of their rockets, it was either shot down or it just killed civilians. But it wasn't a strategic weapon. And that's why they're mad. And that's why the Palestinians in America are mad. And that's why the campuses are mad. And that's why Barack Obama is mad. And that's why Macron is mad. And that's why Blinken is mad. Because they went at it. And each side had a disproportionate strategy to win the war. And one side's strategy didn't turn as successful. And it's sort of like us, as you quoted, Jack, in Iraq, that we killed probably inadvertently 200,000 civilians is the cost of ridding them of Saddam Hussein and ISIS. I don't know how many we killed in World War II that were civilians, probably over a million people to destroy the Nazi and Japanese war machine because we didn't have any other way to do it. And yes, we dropped leaflets sometime, but comparing the number of casualties that we inflicted as collateral damage. And yes, as I said earlier, Barack Obama bragged about his targeted assassination missions over Pakistan, in which he went to a White House dinner and told people, hey, if you're going to date my daughter, be careful. It's called Predator. Never hear it, never see it coming. And then when asked about it later, he said, well, I, you know, it's just clear to me that civilians who shouldn't have been killed were killed. But did that mean he's going to stop his predator assassinations on the packet? No, he kept on doing. He got John Brennan to lie under oath that there was no collateral damage, but even he couldn't get away with that. And he's a bald-faced liar. <laughs> so he 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 just said, "I'm sorry. I just I just lied under oath." But I'm John Brennan, head of the CIA, worked for Barack Obama. You can't charge me with perjury. And there's did, where we are. So it's. Did you see Douglas Murray's yes, uh, interview? Yes, I did. Uh, which uh, I don't know if, if all our listeners did, but Pierce Morgan was pulling the kind of equivocate, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, equal uh, body count lo logic. And Douglas was who's reporting from uh, the from the battle zone uh, was having none of it and brought up some British history. Also, um, if you, I, if you want to comment on that, if not, we'll move on. Um, well, uh, I mean, it was. When he, he, they use all these terms and Douglas Murray deconstructed all of them. So colonial, 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 the Jews have been there since the third millennia before the Arabs were there. Not a lot of them because they were wiped out and ethnically cleansed by Romans and scattered in the diaspora. But they were there before any Arab was ever there. And as far as the colonial presence, i.e. are Israelis white like the British? No, 
the the colonial presence was an afterthought. The British and the French did not take over there until they defeated the Ottomans, who were aligned overtly with a German Kaiser in World War One and were sympathetic to Hitler in World War Two, and uh, they defeated Ottomanism, which had been what? It had been a colonial power that inflicted uh, its damage, its rule, whatever the term that they use at Harvard or Yale, they were colonial powers who had occupied Palestine for 400 years. And then the British took it for from 1918 until after World War II, not very long at all. And so that's, and as far as apartheid, as I said earlier, there's a lot of apartheid in the world, and some people say, well, don't be, what about them? Talk about the apartheid in the Middle East. Okay, I will talk about the apartheid. If you were a Jewish citizen of Egypt or Damascus or Beirut, you know, or, I don't know, Cairo, Algiers, anywhere in the Arab world, you were a second-class citizen. And when the Rubber met the road in the 47, 56, 67, 73. As soon as Israel started to win, your neighbors went out and tried to have a pogrom, and they ethnically washed you out of those countries because you were second-class citizens that were in danger of being third and fourth and fifth-class citizens, meaning you were going to be dead, dead. And they went to the only place in the world that was safe is Israel. And that's what apartheid is. If you occupation, as I said, uh, well, what about them? Cyrus, Turkey is op- occupying Greek Cyprus right now. Nobody says a word. Turkish forces are occupying parts of Armenia. Nobody says a word. Uh, genocide, look at defer. Look at what river to the sea means. So we could go through every one of these terms, and, and Douglas Murray destroyed uh, he destroyed Piers Morgan on one particular thing I thought was really good, Jack, was when Piers Morgan said, well, they say river to the sea, but they don't always mean it, meaning there are people in the crowd that don't interpret it that way. And his point was, but they know how the people yelling it interpret it, don't they? And they go along with it, don't they? And they are no more or no less guilty than the people who were in Germany who knew what one Reich, one country, one Fuhrer meant, even though they didn't mouth it. But did they ever object to it? Did they ever get away from the demonstration and say, not in my name? No. No, 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 no. So they were complicit. And they let other people mouth what they were feeling because if they didn't feel that way, they would have objected or they would have walked away from the demonstration. And they didn't. So they were parcel to a genocidal agenda. I thought it was pretty effective takedown. Well, Victor, let's talk some more about uh, demonstrations. And we'll do that right after these important messages. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? 
maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show again. We're recording on Saturday, November 11th, which is Veterans Day, and hope we'll have some time at the end of the podcast to get some veterans thoughts from Victor right now though Victor a um, couple of things happened yesterday in real time which is the 10th Friday the 10th in New York City um, there was a, a big pro-Palestinian um, uh, protest march that uh, vandalized the New York Times building strange I you know the New York Times is still in you know for many people consider it uh, you know, pro-Israel or Jewish, or um, in part because the, the family that owned the paper, but still, it has it. It's certainly been a seemingly a more uh, friendly to Hamas than Israel in the in the last several weeks of alleged reporting. But anyway, it was the it was attacked by these protesters. Uh, Grand Central Station, the big big uh, transit hub, where you know I used to go in and out of every day for 25 years was a uh, lockdown. Um, and then Victor, you know, the other day, last week, there were, were there was the, um, I'll call it an assault at the, at the white house, uh, pro Palestinian uh, group, a big, big rally demonstration threats of people trying to climb the white house fence, um, graffiti all over the building, so I'm just I'm curious, Victor, what qualifies as an insurrection in the United States? Oh, we I think the listeners are saying, Victor, let me answer that. <laughs> an insurrection is anything is a demonstration which is predominantly made up of conservatives. That's it. That's an insurrection. And a non-insurrection means you can burn a police precinct you, with police in it if you can get them. It's You can burn a federal courthouse. You can burn the iconic St. John's Episcopal Church. You can try to storm the White House grounds and get to Donald Trump and force him into a bunker. You can throw a firebomb at two policemen and try to burn them alive in New York. You can commit $2 billion of damage, 120 days of rioting and looting, kill 35 people, injure 1,500 police officers. That is not an insurrection because it's Antifa-led and BLM-led. Or alternatively, Jack, you can go to the White House, as you said. You can break the law by illegally entering the rotunda, which we're told is a sacred space as it occurred to January 6th. And unlike Mr. Buffalo Horns and his war makeup who pranced around the rotunda, you can go sit and occupy it and deny its use to anyone else. And then, not that he was break, wasn't breaking law. He was breaking law, and so were they. And then you can disrupt Congress, which I thought, according to Lynn Cheney, 
was an impeachable offense if you were connected with it. And I, I'll get there in a minute, but people started to disrupt congressional hearings by screaming and yelling and had to be forcibly removed. And then we had the one of the architects was a member of Congress, Rashid Talib, who, while this was happening, was screaming to people about the river to the sea on her social media. And then she was still uh, spreading this outright bald face on truth that the Israelis had bombed a hospital when she knew that it had been proven overwhelmingly through audio, visual, uh, and firsthand eyewitness reports, satellite imagery on our part as well, that Islamic Jihad had shot a rocket toward Israel designed to kill Jews, and it fell short and killed some people of Gaza in a parking lot without hurting them. She knew that, and yet she was, I guess what we'd say, she was an insurrectionist. Because Donald Trump said, of course, you should assemble and protest peacefully over at the Capitol. She didn't say peacefully once. And, of course, there's a special prosecutor looking at what Donald Trump's role was in January 6th. So that's what is is and is not an insurrection, according to the definition. It's all about not what actually takes place, but what the ideology of the protesters are. People are getting very angry about this. You mentioned the disruptions in New York and the Brooklyn Bridge. And, and at UCLA, Jack, I'm down in Los Angeles, but I was talking to some people today in Los Angeles, and people are very upset that uh, on the UCLA campus, they had, I guess they're students or Middle East immigrants with a club hitting a pinata saying smash or kill the Jew with Netanyahu's face on. Not that he they dislike him any more than the other, but he's a representation of Israel. And they do that all the time. And so I guess the idea is we're just going to keep bringing in people from the Middle East because what? They like America so much, they call the President of the United States Genocide Joe. They shut down our facilities. They deface White House properties. They deface uh, statues. They shut down bridges, terminals. And we have students on student visa. And so they must hate the United States. And they do certain things that the Israeli, uh, pro-Israeli crowds don't. Have you noticed that they are led mostly by people with masks? Right. And they do not allow other people to put up posters. What I'm getting at, Jack, is when I look at an Israeli protest, they don't have masks on and they don't go tear down Palestinian posters and they don't get shrill. It's both sexes. Uh, in the Middle East, it's only men. And here it seems to be led by female students. And they scream and yell and they issue threats and they talk about genocide. I haven't heard anybody on the Israeli side that protests says, let's eliminate Gaza off the face of the map. They may have to uh, get rid of Hamas, but they don't quite say what the uh, Palestinians are saying, which gets back to this latest outrage that they're furious about is that uh, there are members of Congress uh, that have introduced legislation that we just don't want to let anybody in. It's our prerogative. We just feel that people who want to immigrate from the United States should not be allowed if their point of origin is a terrorist country or if they embody or support terrorism. 
So if you want to come to the United States and you're from Gaza or the Palestine West Bank or just don't come because you don't like us. And why would you want to come over here? And would you come all the way over here to shut down the terminal, Grand Central, or to occupy the Brooklyn Bridge or to yell, kill the Jews at, at UCLA? So we just, you know, we don't dislike you. We just suggest on this motion that you don't you don't hurt yourself and inconvenience yourself and trouble yourself by being around these awful Americans and all these awful Jews. So please don't do it. And if you're here on a student visa and you're our guest, we want to treat you exactly like you would treat us. So if my children or the listener's children want to study abroad in Cairo or they want to be a Middle Eastern studies minor in Damascus or they want to go to Oman and enjoy the delights of Jordan and during this war, they don't like what their host is doing. So as students, they're going to go out in the streets of old Cairo or along the seaside in Beirut, and they're going to say, genocide, CC, genocide, Obas, genocide, Hamas, and they're going to try to shut down a bridge with their blonde hair and blue eyes or their non-Arabic appearance. And what would happen to you if you did that, if we treated our students who are not citizens of the United States, who are not residents, but they're here on a student visa. What would happen if we were to treat them like any American would be treated and their homelands who protested about the war and protested their host government? And everybody's saying that is a no brainer. Yeah. But two things, by the way, we're really angry at that asymmetry and also the hypocrisy. Come over here and take advantages of all this prosperity and freedom and security and abuse your guest uh, hospitality like that. It's just really sickening. Yeah, I well, I was I, I'm going to say there are three things quickly, kind of all related, not to Hamas, but the immigration uh, problem at our non-existent border. One is a piece in today's New York Post that of all the the um, the illegal immigrants that have come into New York City, only two percent have applied for work permits. So the argument that they're here they're here to seek jobs and futures. There's so much BS there. The second is that even in California, I saw a general poll about politics in California and negative on Biden and Gavin Newsom, et cetera. But uh, very significant numbers, uh, I think well over 60 percent of folks sick about what's happening in the border. And the third thing is in Chicago, kind of related here, um, where there was an altercation between some aldermen. But the altercation was over the... um, um, an Hispanic alderman who's kind of the the enforcer for the lefty mayor was trying to prevent a black alder, alder, alder woman from attending a meeting for a referendum to discuss a referendum on removing Chicago's sanctuary city status because of all the madness that has resulted from illegal immigration there. So uh, that, and that that's the Chicago story has uh, the complexity of, you know, we've talked, you've talked many times about uh, sanctuary city, but also this tension between blacks and Hispanics uh, is kind of, kind of evident yeah, there. What, yeah. What we're doing is the diversity equity, excuse me, equity. I don't think Michelle Obama 
uh, speaks on that anymore. When she went to Germany, it was diversity and inclusion because she was getting $12,000 a minute for speaking. So in theory, it's diversity, I mean, equity, inclusion, but they don't, these very wealthy diversity, equity, inclusion people are starting to drop the word equity out because they surely do not want to spread their own wealth around anybody but themselves. But I think the point is, what do all these stories have in common? It's a Hobbesian, Bellum, Omnia, Contra, Omnes, a war of everyone against everyone, which is typical of a tribal society. This country works only to the extent that every single person says, I am an American, essentially, and I am incidentally Swedish, Hungarian, Latino, black. And when you don't do that, then you say that your multiracial democracy can still work. And I would like someone to tell me how it works in Brazil or India or anywhere in the world where you have tribes that are not integrated and assembled. It doesn't work. And it's not working here. So now we have Hispanics in Chicago fighting blacks. And we had uh, in the L.A. City Council, you and I talked about that, Jack, with that hot mic where the Latino members were talking right. in a derogatory term about everybody, Jews, uh, blacks. And Gays, we, yeah. yes, we had the BLM hatred. Now we have the white rage, white privilege, white this, white this demonization of 67 percent of the population. And you can see where it's going. So we're either going to have to stop the DEI woke industry or we're going to be consumed by it and we're going to end up into a third-rate tribal society almost every single story has a di subtext you read today ted cruz's interest trying to find out from the federal aviation administration to what degree near misses and fly arounds and all these aborted landings have anything to do with the fact that the faa stop giving preference for people in the military who had prior flight control training or that the particular airlines themselves had quotas on DEI applicants. Or when you look at these students and you see uh, a, a class in mathematics at MIT and oh, a yeah. mi Middle Eastern person comes in and hijacks the class so right. he can give a rant. Why does he think he can do that with exemption? Why does he think you can do that? And when we hear the word white hatred and we look to substantiate that through data, so we go to the first place you look if there is white hatred, white rage, white privilege, we go to the FBI statistics, which I did. It's very hard to find, Jack. They're really only full back to 2019. Right. Once you go back there and you start digging, you find find that although interracial crime is only 7 to 8% of reported violent crime, that blacks are about 6 times to 10 times, depending on the particular crime, more likely to attack whites than, than whites black. So I don't hear the word black rage. Then when I look at hate crimes, I find, as Christopher Ray, the head of the FBI, reiterated in congressional testimony that Jews make up 2.4% of the population. They account for 60% of all the crime victims. And guess who the perpetrators are? They're not so-called white people. They're underrepresented. 
as perpetrators. Blacks right. are over twice uh, their numbers in the general population. Latinos are overrepresented too. So the DEI people are more represented as purveyors of hate crimes. And so what I'm getting at is you can see where this is all going. And so when Donald Trump gets angry and everybody says he's a racist for saying Latita James is a racist, that we say, I, in this heated DEI environment, I do not want to hear one side label the other without fact. Donald right. Trump says Latita James is a racist. Let me go back and see if there's support for that allegation. And lo and behold, you find that she has a habit of saying too pale, too male, too stale, and mentions mm -hmm. the Trump administration specifically. And so there you have it. So we're either going to hang separately or hang together. I don't know. We're going to have to hang and thrive together or we will hang separately. But because mm -hmm. we are reaching a point where when you say that my tribe, that my superficial appearance gives me exemption from consequences or preference by on the basis not of my merit this isn't 1960 with a black white dichotomy 90 percent this is a multiracial society now and when each tribe says i get preference because i'm from the middle east and i'm not white no you don't i'm hispanic i get more than no you don't don't dare i'm an intersectional person but i uh, blacks get more no asians have been discriminated against when you get into that that tribal rivalry, it's destroying the country, and it expects it'll affect our universities, our yes. airlines, everything, until somebody has the guts to say, you can call me whatever you want, but we're going to stop being racist. Yeah. No more, the, the, Buffy, no more Buffy St. Marie's masquerading for years as a na Native American for her career. No right. more Elizabeth Warren saying, I have high cheekbones, therefore I'm Indian, therefore I'm going to get a law, law professorship at Harvard. No more Ward Church, I'm going to put a bunch of buckskin and beads on and be an Indian and be a professor that I didn't otherwise uh, have the ability to achieve that status. And I think everybody's sick of it. And it's very simple to end. Just support the Supreme Court's ruling. Nobody's going to get preference or deference or criticism or bias based on their race, religion, ethnic background. Yeah. I, I, it's well past time. If we don't do this, it's going to destroy us. Yeah. Well, th there's a fixation on race, but the reality of racism as we had now it's like two years ago and Shelby Steele was on the podcast. I'm sure he said it elsewhere. You know, if I had to draw up a list of real problems, I have, I have racism would be number 17 on the list. Essentially just saying it's, it's not part of life. Um, no, for, but, but racism is part of life and project elites projecting it, you know, but, but uh, the realities of your first man in the street being treated by bigotry and it's it's it must happen i'm sure it's anecdotal but as a it is come a mean, long I, way. we had a picture the other yesterday of all the people in mexico yelling biden go biden all hispanic from mexico and i'm thinking to myself eight million people have come across the border what if right now we had a massive airlift from ukraine it's a country of 41 million people and 10 million are displaced. 
and they're a lot worse condition than people in Mexico because they're in a war zone. What if some right-wing politician said, you know, every time we take, we bring in somebody from a former communist country who's European, they tend to be a little bit more conservative. So we want an airlift to bring in 10 million people illegally from Ukraine because they look like the dominant population and they're conservative. And we're going to do it illegally. And I would hope that people on the conservative side would feel like I would, was no, you're not going to do that right. just to enhance your own conservative European constituency because it'll destroy the country and it's illegal. But when you're in the DEI category, it's okay, we can break the law. It doesn't matter. And yeah. these universities are really ruining themselves because when you see these presidents and you see what's going on and they will not criticize anybody who is associated with DEI in the way they would if they were so-called white or Jewish or both. It's, it's pathetic. If you had a black professor at MIT going through a mathematical problem or theorem on the chalkboard, and you had a crazy white person come in and say, wait a minute, what's happened to the January 6th defendants is a travesty and I want five minutes. I'm taking over your class. That person would not just be expelled. He would be put in jail for that. And yet just because this guy's from the Middle East, he thinks he can disrupt a, a mathematics class, whatever it is at, at MIT. It's just people who are thinking, no, 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 it doesn't work. It's destroying the yeah. well, and it will make sure that we will not continue as a preeminent place. It's already happened. I don't think there's any support well, for it either. I don't. I don't think there's any more public support for it. I think people are sick of it. Everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like strapping on a hard hat and <laughs> doing something, replicating what happened 50 years ago when uh, you know the hard hats took things on in a maybe not the right the Christian way, but it seemed effective. Anyway, Victor. As Senator Rand Paul recently pointed out, United Healthcare pays AARP roughly $800 million per year. This explains why AARP supported the Inflation Re Reduction Act, which had nothing to do with inflation, but did give billions of tax dollars to big corporations. Well, the Association of Mature American Citizens, that's AMAC, is fighting every day to pass common sense policies for American seniors. AMAC is working to preserve Social Security and Medicare, pass health care transparency, secure election integrity, and protect our children and grandchildren from the left's dangerous agenda. Join me and 2 million Americans nationwide and become an AMAC member today for as little as $1 a month. Let me repeat that, $1 a month. This is our chance to remind Washington that we have a voice. And with the help of AMAC, we will fight to preserve our values. Join AMAC today at amac.us forward slash Victor. That's A-M-A-C dot U-S forward slash V-I-C-T-O-R. And we thank AMAC for sponsoring the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor, um, tomorrow, this show, okay, we're recording on Saturday. This particular episode comes out on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, in somewhere in the San Francisco area, I don't think it's San Francisco itself, I, I, the Bay Area, I'm not sure where it's happening, 
Joe Biden and uh, President President Xi of Communist China are meeting in person to go over the very uh, damaged relationship between these two countries. I read some stories related to this, Victor, the two of them, when they were both vice presidents of respective countries, I guess they had some kind of a friendly relationship. I don't know if Joe Biden remembers that at all. (laughs) Oh, he brags how many miles he flew with him. They were all lies, of course, as is Joe's way. But I kind of feel relieved because when I heard that, Jack, I thought to myself, finally, we finally know what Joe Biden's going to do. He finally has the head of this Chinese communist regime in the United States. So we know what he's going to do, Jack. He's going to say, first of all, you send another balloon on a spy mission over our military. And so I'm going to shoot it down. Chi, Mr. Chi, you understand that? Next thing Joe Biden's going to say is, you stop dumping product to get market share. You start stop manipulating currency. You stop copyright uh, infringement. You stop patent stealing, or we're going to really clamp down on you. Next thing I know he's going to say, he said, you keep your nose out of the Philippines and Vietnam and stop trying to take property that's not yours. As far as our jets, you you buzz us one more time or buzz our ships and you're going to regret it because this is what's going to happen. And he's going to only as far as your regime, how dare you call us racist when you have one million Weggers in a labor separated concentration camp and you're discriminating them ethnically, racially and religiously. Shame on you. So that's what he's going to say, I hope. And I'm sure he will. And then it'll be clarity. Unless you think <laughs> Mr. Yeah. Cheese would say, I would be careful if I were you, Mr. Biden, because we gave over $10 million through our affiliate companies that was channeled to the big guy. And we know that recently evidences came out that you got your 10% of one of our $400,000 checks to your brother. So you keep that up and we're going to unleash the big enchilada about your lifetime grifting with us. And we've got records you would not believe. So I hope that's not true. Well, somebody's over a barrel. Hey, Victor, uh, we're going to get close out the show by... uh, Having having you share maybe some family Veterans Day thoughts and uh, we'll t- maybe we can get into that via a movie and we'll we'll get to that right after this final important message. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. 
So Victor, I've, always, I've, I've probably seen it 50 times. I'm a Turner junkie, um, Turner classic movies. Uh, the best years of our lives, which was uh, at one point, I think Ben-Hur topped it, but it, it was best picture and won several Oscars. And it's a, just a tremendous movie of post-war, three veterans dealing with um, uh, new life back in America after the war. Um, people, our listeners love when you talk about movies. I'd like to know, Victor, if you have any particular thought about that movie? Do you like it? Not everyone likes it. Um, so it's a little liberal, but your thoughts on that. And then you know, maybe your thoughts about your, your father, uh, who was a, well, I'll call him a war hero in uh, World War II and how he handled being a veteran and dealing with his fellow veterans when he was back um, living in Selma, California. Well, you know, I love uh, the best years of our life, and uh, I like William Wyler, the director. And remember, he did that Mrs. Minerva that was great. Oh, Mrs. Min- oh, yeah, yeah, that was right before it. And then even when Powerful. he got even when he got older, I know that he had some near misses. But you remember that movie Friendly Persuasion with Gary Cooper about the Amish? And that was a great. Oh, movie. sure. Yeah. yeah. And then that, my, that. one of my favorite. Yeah. was the big country. Remember that with Charlton Hessen versus Gregory Peck and they had Burl Ives in it. It was a wonderful movie. Yeah. Rated. And then, of course, Ben Hur. So I really lo- I, I love that movie. And um, especially, uh, you know, he also did. Uh, there's another war movie I was thinking of, 12 O'Clock High. You oh, I love that. Great, great I just saw it again the other day. Yeah. And, and, uh, Dean, Dean Jagger was really, it was very sad. And uh, that was that guy, Henry King, that he did a lot of movies that were never uh, appreciated. Another weird movie was that one was, I was just thinking right now, was Steve McQueen, The War Lover. Do you remember that one? These were all bomber movies. And it was sort of, he was a pathological pilot and... Uh, it was, I don't know what the guy's name is, Philip Lacotte or something, the director, but he he did a lot. So what I'm getting at is, because you ask about my family, is we, when I was a little kid, we watched uh, 12 O'Clock High, the best years of our lives, because you remember the, uh, the whole subtext of that were B-17 pilots. Dana right. had been a B-17. Uh, nav- uh, Bombardier. Yes. yes. And then we watched 12 O'Clock High, both the TV show and the original movie. And then we watched uh, The the War Lover. We watched The Dam Busters. And my dad didn't really say much, but, you know, he had these, I think I've mentioned these big scrapbooks. And they were all of the missions, uh, every one of the 40 missions. He was this central fire control gunner on a B-29. They had a primitive computer and they had a glass bubble on the top of the, the aircraft. And at key moments, that central fire control gunner could override individual turrets and concentrate all of the twenty uh, the 50 caliber machine guns. I think there were 14 of them at a particular, if it was a really a dangerous approach, he would make a decision and say, we've got to get this plane first. And then they would blow it up with all, and then he would, they would release it. But the problem was, the person who was in the bubble with the greatest visibility was also the most vulnerable. So they got killed. 
And I think on the third mission or fourth mission, the person that was there he was relieved, and my father was put in there. And oh, I think wow. he shot down four. Uh, I have the certificates at home. They're Kate's, Tony's, Raiden's, you know, they have the name of them. Yeah. And the little certificates. And then he went out on the bomb. Wait, he shot, he shot down? Your father yeah. shot yeah. down four? Planes? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. They gave Holy you a really, they, they gave you a great little certificate. And they have categories, you know, they say confirm kill, probable kill, etc. Because if if one person also shot it down, then they don't know how to share the thing. But he has, I think, two confirmed and two probable kills certificates. And then he got the highest uh, the Air Force Medal equivalent to the Civil Star um for walking out on the Bombay and freeing a uh, a napalm bomb that was stuck over Tokyo. And he couldn't wear his uh, parachute because it was too bulky. So he went out with a uh, screwdriver and got it out. But my point is that uh, I grew up with all that. And then, as I said earlier, he had a first cousin whose mother died in childbirth. And his father was blind from a farm accident. And they kind of adopted him. They had the same grandfather, my Swedish Swedish immigrant. And they joined the Marine Corps when they graduated from college, first in their families. And then they were told there was going to be the Super Division, Jack. It was going to be the 6th Marine Division. And they were going to bring in about a third to a half of it, the old breed, you know, and, and and E.B. Sledge's book, those guys, to train it. And it was going to be people with college degrees, and it was going to incorporate all of the learning that they had accumulated at Peleliu and um, Harawa, Iwo, and then they were going to be in time to go for the big show in Okinawa. So right before they were, I think they were in Guadalcanal training, and my father, I think I said, somebody hit the unofficer, and they we're going to fix you two big Swedish kids. And one took the blame and they thought that they gave him a choice between discharge or going into a suicide mission, which was a training of B-29s in Nebraska were crashing because they were experimental. So he went over there and I think he had a couple of crashes and survived. And then they shipped him. I don't know where the first place was, but it wasn't Tinian. And then they went, they conquered the Marianas. He went there he got in a squadron with 16 planes, 14 were lost. He survived uh, eight hours over 1,600 miles to Tokyo, 1,600 miles back, no computers or anything. And then they didn't have Iwo until, you know, February, March, uh, March, I guess, to stop. And they, I think they had one forced landing and they had to stop another time for people who were wounded. So that's what, and then the person, Victor Hansen, um, who was, so remained in the Marines and had a pretty, he was a corporal and he was killed on the last day, the last hours of Sugarloaf Hill on Okinawa on May 19th, 1945. And of course, my grandfather was kind of upset because there was four Swedish kids in his family and they said the... Uh, we're going to take the one that's the oldest and not married. And so they took him and he was 27 and he didn't get back till he was, I think, 30. He went over um, in late, uh, early 1918, by the time he got out of Fort Lewis, Washington, and 
91st Infantry Division. He was a teamster at first because he grew up, that was his job, breaking horses. He was a masterful horseman. And they had him train black troops. And he was very impressed with, uh, I, I know that even though he was an old, you know, Scandinavian, he had never really seen black people in Kingsburg, California, which was a Swedish colony. And he he got along very well, but then they needed men. So they they gave him, uh, he was a, I think a Lewis machine gunner. And he got trapped in um, one of the last offensive, Bella Wood, I think it was. And uh, he he got gassed both by mu- mustard gas, and they ate things that had it, and it ate part of his stomach out and destroyed two-thirds of his lungs. And so when I knew him, he, 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 he was in his 70s, 60s, and he was not, he died at, I think, 79 he lived to be, but he wasn't in good shape. And then I said he had a, my dad's other first cousin was in supplying the Soviets through land lease by bringing supplies through Iran to them. And God, sir, I think there were six or seven. So when you were at Christmas, Thanksgiving, they were all around there talking about, yeah. you know, what, what it was like in the Aleutians, what it was like in Iran, what it was like on a B-29, um, what it was like for my mom's first cousin who was in an armored unit with Patton, and what it was like for poor, you know, or Holt got shot in the head right after Normandy, and so and they named all the people they knew or were related they had been killed in World War II. And uh, a lot of sacrifice and valor from one family, Victor. Yeah, there's a, a nice monument in a little town called Kingsburg, which started out my great grandfather and a bunch of Swedes were that came from Lund via Chicago, I think, uh, founded it. He was. I don't think he was the original 20 or 30, but he came very quickly after that. And he bought the uh, farm right next to what would become the high school, so in downtown. And then they, in the 40s, they transferred that to the city. They sold some for development, and the city got a park out of it. And uh, there's a monument there, Hanson Corner, and it has my grandfather's World War I reference and my uncle, Robert Hanson, and my father, William Hanson, service and then victor hansen was killed and it's still there but uh you know i you grew up with all those stories they didn't really my dad never drank a bit of alcohol till he was 50 he had quit smoking and then i don't know what happened but in his 50s he started to drink again or Mm. the first time yeah and smoke again and so when he would have a couple drinks he would talk about it but never when he was sober and uh, I, I mentioned to one broadcast, it was really interesting to have these people come when I was, uh, you know, like five, six, seven in the late 50s, which was 10 or 15 years after they would show up or we would visit some of them that had been part of that 11 man crew. <laughs> and they were, uh, it was right out, right out of uh, stereotypical Frank Capra movie, you know what I mean? Yeah, right. It was the, the Jewish American guy was right. a, a genius navigator, and they were so happy that he was a mathematical whiz and got them all home because he would get out his little figures or slide rule and figure out how many gallons of gas they had, how many 
what was the shortest way to Tinian? What were the, uh, you know what I mean? They they, they right. pull in the computer. And I don't even know if they knew what a computer was, but he could compute, <laughs> he could compute anything. And then there was a pilot, a guy named Alan B. Was, and he not only flew their missions, he went to Korea and flew 50 more. And he had oh certain gosh. techniques about how to take off at Tinian, rev it up to a high RPM, you know, slam on the brakes once you're revving up and then just pop the brakes and do a wheelie and get off go straight up before you went down because a lot of planes crashed they were overloaded and he was meticulous about you know checking the plane counting the exact weight of all the napalm figuring out the weather the winds would and so he would come but he was a junk man i mean he collected things so he was kind of a heavy he would come by in this big truck every once in a while they would have you know he would collect furniture and i don't mean junk but he was a yeah he had kind of a Secondhand business. Yes, exactly. And then he would go and I'd say, wow, that guy's a weird. My dad would get really angry. That, he would point to that truck and he'd say, that man saved my life. He saved everybody's life. He was the most courageous man I've ever met. And he sat there with a windshield and when a Tony or a Zero came at full speed right at him, he didn't flinch, he didn't move. And when we got over the bomb target, we never had to make a circle around because he was absolutely, even when we weren't fire, when they weren't firebombing, we were precision bombing or we were mining harbors. He just kept right on course. He didn't, nothing bothered him. Wow. And, there, and then, you know, there was, it was just all those guys. And uh, I kind of got this idea of the tragic hero, not from just watching John Ford movies or, you know, studying one of my authors in, in classics was Sophocles. So I read all seven extant plays in Greek when I was an undergraduate, and then I specialized kind of a little bit in them in graduate school. But before all that, I, I was, as a little kid, I was just wondering, I'd always ask my parents. I should say that I wasn't an athlete like my two brothers. Uh, I didn't have 20-20 vision like they did. I had thick glasses, and I was left-handed, so they always thought I was... I don't know where I came from. Geek. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we, uh, my mom would kind of laugh and said, you don't look like the rest of us. <laughs> and you're left-handed and you, you're you nearsighted. And you've, I had a lot of illnesses when I was a kid. Uh, and my, my brothers were like indestructible. And then I would read. They'd always, you know, say we were. I had a first cousin that we grew up with, and there was four of us, so two on each side for baseball or basketball. And they'd say, "You tell Victor to come out of that. Or we don't get his head out of that book. We want to play. We want to sports." And I would say, "I don't want to. I want to read this about Rome or something." And so, anyway, it was. Uh, it was uh, when I was meeting all these people i just thought wow these people are totally as a little kid i think they're not doing well in peace so i'd say to my dad well is mr allenby a multimillionaire?" millionaire he'd say no <laughs> i said well he was such a great pilot and he was right. why isn't he and my dad will say well son being good in one area doesn't mean you're going to be good in another and then my mother would kind of chime in and said, because there's a certain type of person you need in war, and that certain person is made on earth for one purpose, and that is to save other people. And sometimes yeah. we don't appreciate them when that existential struggle is over. She was pretty, she really worshiped these guys because they had, you know, got her husband home. Right. Got her future husband. So she was, 
for somebody, you know, who had grown up in a farm and she was the first student body, first female student body at Selma High School. She she got a BA from UOP, then she got another BA from Stanford, and then she got a JD in 1946, and then she couldn't get a job because she was a woman. So she was she tried to be a a legal secretary with a JD from Stanford, and then she raised us, and then she went to work again at 40 and later became a judge. But for all that, she really was a very earthy person and loved these guys that came by our house. Some of them had those old leather jackets, you know? And, yeah. And I said, well, God, they're kind of like Hell's Angels. I said that in the six, and my mom said, yes, yes, meaning be careful. And then she told me a story that my dad never would say. She goes, when I was pregnant with our first child who passed away, she said, I came home and your father, I was gone for a week and he grew a mustache and he brought out his leather bomber jacket and he oiled his hair and it was back. And he was, he bought a motorcycle. We had no money. And he was driving around on a motorcycle in a leather jacket with a mustache with some of these characters from the war. <laughs> That was wow. <laughs> so your dad was was a, a hell's angel original. I, right? I don't think it lasted very long about it. Yeah. Anyway, some people in his bombing squadron came by and yeah. they, when she was in the maternity ward and he was home during the day or he was, I don't know what it was, but he got kind of enthralled by the idea of the wild one with these guys and reliving their war. So he went out and got his clothes out of the closet, his leather jacket. East uh, started riding a motorcycle. Uh, I must, I'd love to have met your 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 father. Wow. Hey, Victor, we um, we're going to um, conclude shortly, but before I uh, you know, read the uh, comment from one of our listeners, I want to remind uh, our listeners, particularly the new ones, that you have a website, The Blade of Perseus. It's at victorhanson.com. And folks that go there will find the archives to these podcasts and links to your articles at uh, uh, your syndicate column at American Greatness. They will also find ultra articles, which in order to read them, you need to subscribe. And I really do encourage you to do that. It's $5 to get in the door. A discounted full year subscription is $50. Uh, links to Victor's books are there. Also, forthcoming book. Uh, since we're, you know, we've already been inundated. If you turn on the TV, it's you know, Christmas ads have been, excuse me, holiday ads. None of them will dare say the word Christmas, but they've been they've been on for several weeks now. I do think if there's someone in your life, dear listener, who's a a uh, military history buff. Find on on the website, victorhanson.com, The Blade of Perseus. Find the link for the Second World Wars, and uh, it will make an exceptional uh, Christmas gift. So uh, that's that. And as for me, Jack Fowler, I write Civil Thoughts, a free weekly email newsletter for the Center for Civil Society, where I, I provide... I always say a dozen or more. It's actually 14, so I'm just going to say 14. 14 links and excerpts of articles that I've come across the previous week that I think you will enjoy. I've got a lot of very, very friendly and positive feedback from folks who've subscribed. Uh, it's free, totally free. There's no risk. We're not selling your name, so go to civilthoughts.com and sign up. And again, that's for the Center for Civil Society at Amphil, where we are trying 
to strengthen civil society. And Victor will close this out by reading a comment that a nice listener left at the um, at Apple, where Apple slash iTunes, you can rate the show zero to five stars, leave comments. We read them all. And here's one. Victor Davis gold medal. Listen to all Victor's podcasts. He is thorough, accurate and highly informed. Enjoy his visits into historical events as well as the political content. If there were podcast gold medals, Victor would get the gold. And that's from Gregor Berkey. And we thank you, Gregor. And we thank all listeners who leave comments and who, just for all those who listen. Victor, you've been terrific today. Uh, appreciate well, it. Happy, you. late, happy, happy veterans. Yes, go, I have, go ahead. Have, go ahead. It's one, your show. I have, one, I have one request of our listeners. Yes. So I've been anticipating um, this uh, Napoleon Ridley Scott movie. You yeah. know, it's come out, and I really, you know, because uh, I, I recently reviewed Andrew Roberts' superb biography of Napoleon right. a couple of years ago, and I've read a lot about Napoleon, and I'm I'm not a big fan of Napoleon, like some people are, because mm-hmm. he, he killed a lot of people for nothing. But nevertheless, uh, one of our readers, Paul, and I think it's a, it's a pretty good note he just very quickly just says i'm hoping or maybe praying that you review the upcoming napoleon movie so that i can that i do not waste time if it is terrible (laughs) i will even uh buy you a ticket i haven't seen it paul hasn't seen it but i think he's uh he's written me before and they're always informative letters so why don't we all see and whether it's a good movie and then we'll talk about it when it it's released you know, to the general public, and we can find out what we think about it. Well, that sounds like a great idea. I, yeah. And I, as you know, I didn't win my election for city clerk, so I have I will have time to go to I, movies I was, whenever I, I want. <laughs> I was worried that you weren't going. The reason I was worried you weren't going to win that election was not just that Connecticut is a blue state, but yeah. I don't know exactly the map, but I was watching all of the. Uh, most egregious ballot stuffing by people who worked for the registrars, and they seem to be little communities in your vicinity. Not that I would impugn the result. But well, actually, it was a it was a big community to you know to less than ten miles away, Bridgeport. Which, by the way, Victor Bridgeport was one of those arsenals of democracy back in World War II that made the Bridgeport Press, which made all the other machines. And it's it's the largest city in Connecticut, but just outrageous. I know it. I uh, know. Election rigging, and if I may, the a, a judge. It was so egregious that, like five days before the election, a judge. And it was an egregious ballot stuffing in a Democrat primary, back in September. A judge ruled that that primary had to be reheld, but he could not stop. The general election, which was happening within five days. So uh, Mayor Ganim, who was a, a criminal, he spent time in five, six, seven years in jail already. And he got out and he was reelected. Um, he won. But the Democrats will have to have a primary again. It's just so effed up. That's a technical term. But uh, in my case, Victor, my loss was who, the, the, the people voted, and that's their right and, uh, to do whatever they want. Well, but, everybody, uh, I wouldn't want to run for office, but I admire people who do. And I think the more well, people on our side that are traditionalists, 
the better. And, well, it's so. you will if you do you uh, do kill your social media accounts because uh, whatever you say there will be uh, twisted. Uh, and I was I the state Democratic Party uh, cast me as a as a uh, anti semite. Wow, you're the biggest a, supporter of Israel I know. A bigot, a pervert. Uh, can I tell you the perv story quickly to end the show? Is that I may, I yeah. mocked Brian Williams. Remember back when he had that stolen yeah. valor story, and then didn't, two didn't weeks, he also didn't he also say that he had viewed his daughter in a nude scene? Or am I well? Yes, that's what the other. His daughter was in the show Girls, and she had a scene where she had her uh, hiney, as I, I've used that term in a, in a tweet, her hiney was being licked. And dad uh, dad and daughter sat down and talked to the media and dad and Brian Williams' dad was just fine with with all that. So I, the day he the Stars and Stripes exposed his phony story about being in helicopters in Iraq that were actually sh- not only shot at, but that were, that were hit, um, I wrote... Um, Enough about me and helicopters. Let's talk about our daughters and hiney sex. So this is in 2015. I wrote that. But in 2023, it was cast against me as that I was wow. a, a pervert. Yeah. So but this is what happens. You get in the arena and, uh, you know, this kind of stuff is going to happen, even in a city clerk race in Milford, Connecticut. But uh, so be it. Um, anyway, I'm 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 happy to uh, go see Napoleon uh, at some point soon, and then it'd be great to talk about that. And we'll uh, talk about it as soon as uh, I'll try to see it. I promise the audience as soon as it comes out. And Ridley Stott is either brilliant or sometimes makes duds. Um, <laughs> well, often they're brilliant, like Gladiator, etc. And yeah. Tony Scott, late Tony Scott, was a good director too. But sometimes they don't quite make it. But we'll see which one it is. And I I hope everybody weighs in. Okay, everybody. Thank you for listening. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.